Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 16, A Peaceful Man Stands Alone. Today, we're going to first briefly recap and analyze the reign of Simeon, before having a brief discussion of Bulgaria's geopolitical situation going over the reign of Tsar Peter I. So, let's get into it. We left off last time with the untimely death of Simeon. Now, once again, a Bulgarian leader had left his people preparing for a final, full assault on Constantinople, left them wondering what they should do next. We can imagine that feeling at this point. I mean, after decades of wars against so many enemies, after the lives lost, uh, the sweat of those marching armies, the blood of the dead, what was supposed to come next? Now, Simeon was a complicated man, a man of many faces, who left many legacies. Sure, as we mentioned, his was a golden age of Bulgarian literature. Following the attempt to return to paganism by his older brother, brother Vladimir, Bulgarian culture, language, and literature all seem to stabilize. And the importance of this can hardly be overstated. The transition to Christianity was fraught with difficulties, as Vladimir's revolt showed. This was a critical time when Bulgaria needed strong leadership, and Bulgaria got just that. But as we'll see going forward, the advances made by Simeon were strongly connected with both his own skills and the relatively advantageous geopolitical situation which surrounded Bulgaria at the time. Because, let's face it, when it came to Bulgaria's direct neighbors, there was a problem. Now, Bulgaria has neighbors at this moment, the Byzantines, the Croats, uh, the Serbs before they're absorbed, and then the Serbs again, the Pechenegs, and the Magyars. But that list only tells part of the story. Because beyond each of those peoples were yet more kingdoms, more khanates, more tribes, more empires. The Kievan Rus were growing in strength beyond the Pechenegs, while the Hungarians had settled to their own new home in the middle of the Danube and were raiding throughout Western Europe. The Croatians' power was just ebbing under Tomislav the Great, but they would continue to be a threat for some time. Then, of course, beyond the Byzantine Empire lay the great might of the Abbasid Caliphate. Now, the overall pattern here is one in which Bulgaria has many dangerous neighbors, but Past them are even more dangerous neighbors. So the Bulgarian state has to consider carefully how to balance its foreign policy so it won't be attacked by several neighbors at once. But also understanding that attacking or destroying any of its neighbors risks bringing a new and possibly even more dangerous state to its borders. It's a very precarious situation. So to be frank, I would see this as somewhat unsustainable during these volatile years of the Middle Ages. Sure, it's possible to win at that game, and Simeon did win for, for a while, but Bulgaria couldn't win this forever. Geography and geopolitics were just stacked far too high against it. And as our story unfolds, this is going to be showing more and more. But okay, that's all in the future. That's just a little kind of analysis, a, a broad discussion of the geopolitical situation. But for now, we'll get to Peter the First. 
Now, you'll remember that Simeon passed over his eldest son from his first marriage, Michael, for the eldest son from his second marriage, Peter. There are several kind of competing theories as to why, ranging from that Michal wasn't deemed to have the skills necessary, or that the influence of the family of Simeon's second wife played a major role. <clears throat> Maybe a combination of these factors. Who knows? But whatever the reason, Peter became Tsar Peter I in 927. Now you can imagine that having Simeon as a father and Bordas as a grandfather might put some serious pressure on a boy. So he could say Peter had some serious shoes to fill. The first was to try to convince his to continue his father's war policy against the Byzantines. Again, some pretty serious uh, shoes. So with Peter's uncle, the wife of Simeon's second wife, George Sursubul, as regent, Peter was still very young when he took over, the war continued right along as if Simeon had never left. Runciman puts the position of the regent and Tsar very well. Quote, the regent's position was by no means enviable. So long as he lived, Simeon's personality and prestige awed his enemies abroad and silenced all opponents at home. But now, everyone knew that the terrible Tsar could harm them no more. He was dead. And his empire, just a corpse for vultures to feed upon. End quote. Now, of course, describing the Bulgarian Empire this way is a bit of an exaggeration at this point, but the sentiment was real. If you remember from early episodes, we talked about the extent to which the power of the Roman and later Byzantine empires rested so much upon the perception of their power. Now, Bulgaria never reached those levels, but perceptions of Simeon were incredibly important to his power, and those perceptions are gone. Those neighbors we just mentioned could now all see that a moment had come. The Magyars, the Pechenegs, Croats, and yes, the Byzantines all saw this as a moment to attack. Regent Sursupil may have continued the war against Byzantium in an attempt to show that Bulgaria remained militarily strong, but after the loss against Croatia at the Battle of the Bosnian Highlands just a few months before, it was an unsustainable fantasy to believe that Bulgaria could again just continue as if nothing had happened. To add to the worries, a plague of locusts had just devastated Bulgaria and famine reigned. And so, after raiding Thrace in the first months after Simeon's death, a peace treaty was signed in the fall of 927. Peter agreed to marry the granddaughter of Emperor Romanus. This girl's name was Maria Lecapane. And to return to the borders agreed to 904. Now, this meant that Bulgarian possession of Macedonia was going to remain recognized, and of course, that the Tsar would have a royal bride. In addition, Peter's title of Tsar was recognized, and the Bulgarian church would remain independent under its own patriarch. Prisoners were also exchanged, and an annual tribute to Bulgaria was organized. Importantly, this last provision, provision would later be interpreted as being money for the Byzantine princess and Tsarina, and not for general tribute, but more on that later. All in all, Peter seemed to have come out with a very advantageous peace treaty. It achieved most of what Simeon had dreamed of, without having to give up very much. And so on November the 9th, 927, Peter and Maria married in Constantinople. She took the name Irene, meaning peace. Letters from Romanus to Peter called him son. 
Indeed, this was the first time a Byzantine princess had ever married a foreign ruler. And you'll remember, this is the culmination of a goal that many, many Tsars and Khans have had before. But of course, it's always more complicated than that, isn't it? Why exactly had the Byzantines been so generous in their terms? A large part of that was fear of papal influence. Now remember, the Bulgarians had considered moving closer towards the Roman Catholic Church since before their conversion to Christianity. And the potential loss of influence the Bulgarians had become Catholics at this stage would have been enormous for the Byzantines. Romanus knew that Bulgarians were in contact with the Pope following his brokering a peace between them and the Croatians in 926. So the treaty was an attempt to bring the Bulgarians back into the fold, but importantly, as a subservient state. Note that Peter was called son and not brother. He may have had the title of emperor, but the Byzantines had no intention of treating him as an equal. In addition, looking at the treaty, what did it really give Bulgaria? Was it really worth 14 years of war which had so devastated the army and economy? In spite of what it gave Peter, probably not. It could have been said that the rulers of the first Bulgarian Empire didn't seem to know how to raise their state without war. But these conclusions will have to wait more time and more information. There's just not enough of either at this point. <clears throat> the first Bulgarian Empire still has life to live. So in the meantime, Peter I and his regent are facing much greater challenges. Because Peter had two younger brothers and one older half-brother. Peter also had many Boyard nobles who disagreed fervently with his decision to seek peace with the Byzantines. It was a recipe for disaster. And that disaster began in 928 with a revolt led by Boyars on behalf of Peter's younger brother, John. The revolt was quickly defeated. John was imprisoned before being sent to Constantinople to live the rest of his life as a monk except for that he instead married an Armenian and vanished from historical sources. Those who led the revolt in his name, needless to say, faced much, much harsher punishments. But that was only the beginning, because two years later, in the year 930, a far more serious revolt began, led by Peter's half-brother Michael. Michael had been passed over for being emperor, emperor. Instead, he was sent to a monastery to live as a monk, just as his brother had been. But clearly the life didn't suit him, as he escaped the monastery to a fortress near the Struma River. There, the population renounced Peter and supported Michael. But Michael's sudden death led to an end of the rebellion, as the remaining ringleaders fled to the Byzantines for, for protection. And the cause of his death isn't elaborated on in any sources. So we really don't know what happened. But eventually... Peter's other brother, Benjamin, or Boyan, may have also met some awful fate, although there's not a lot of information about him. But clearly, Peter faced a lot of challenges, and all the challengers left the scene. So at this point, Bulgaria actually enters a long period of relative peace. Bulgaria, it appears as well, is well-run and it's prosperous and enjoys this peace but it's not going to be quite so easy, because Peter's administration was well aware of the lessons gained during his father's reign, well aware of just how vulnerable Bulgaria was. So peace was sought with the Byzantines and the Pechenegs. This relative kind of existing peace had to be buttressed with treaties, with formal understandings of peace between the neighbors. But this was going to come at a heavy price. 
the Emperor Romanus had little of any real respect for his grandson-in-law and showed these feelings often by, for example, refusing to address Peter by his imperial title. Now, just how seriously Romanus took his feelings became clear in 933 when Chaslav, the son of the imprisoned Bulgarian prince Klonomir, and a Bulgarian noblewoman, and grandson of the Serbian prince Peter, escaped Preslav and returned to free Serbia from Bulgarian rule. Now, under normal circumstances, Peter could have likely simply invaded and reasserted control. However, Romanus immediately granted, the Serbia, granted Serbia Byzantine protection, making a strong Bulgarian response impossible without provoking a larger war. So there was little Peter could do, but watch his father's hard-won gains in the West be lost without a fight. He simply couldn't risk war, especially with the Serbs, the Pechenegs, and the Magyars, with every reason to swoop in and take what they can. <clears throat> but even without a Bulgarian-Byzantine war as a temptation, the Magyars and the Pechenegs were eager to raid. In fact, it's at this point that a somewhat new geopolitical dynamic develops for Bulgaria. Because although Peter's reign was generally quite peaceful and long, it was interrupted by major raids by the Magyars in 934, 943, 958, and 962, raids by the Kievan Rus in 941, and by the Kievan Rus along with the Pechenegs in 944. But these raids did not usually have Bulgaria as their target. Their target was almost always Constantinople. Peter's Bulgaria was only unfortunate enough to lay in the way. And when the Byzantines negotiated with these armies, Bulgaria was left out. So the armies might get paid to leave the Byzantines alone, but raiding the Bulgarians on the way home was simply a given, no reason not to. Indeed, it was a terrible irony, because Simeon had succeeded in making Bulgaria a military power. Peter had managed to marry a, Bulgaria, a Byzantine princess and to acquire another imperial title, but all of that meant nothing to these raiders. And even the Byzantine ties meant nothing to the Emperor Romanus. The Pechenegs and Magyars and the Kievan Rus thought nothing of marching over Bulgaria like it was a rug. Now, while we don't have time to go into the details of all these raids, they mostly followed the pattern I just described, it's very important to discuss Bu's raids involving the Kievan Rus. Because they're about to become key players in the region. And because the war that begins now is going to rage for decades and will ultimately drag Bulgaria into the dust. It all began with the sudden death at just 21 years old of Emperor Romanus II in 963. So you notice a few decades have passed. Now upon his death, his wife became regent for their two young sons. But knowing how dangerous this situation was for her sons, she quickly married the powerful general, a man you may remember, Nicophorus Phocas. Now as a general, Phocas was in no mood for peace, least of all with Peter. So when in 965, Bulgarian envoys arrived at the Byzantine court to collect the annual tribute demanded by the Treaty of 927, Phocas decided he didn't need to pay. He was feeling confident after great military victories against the Abbasid Caliphate, and he had decided to interpret the annual gift as being for the upkeep of the Byzantine princess Peter had married. She had recently died, and so Phocas saw no reason to keep paying. Indeed, Phocas whipped the Bulgarian envoys, sending them back to Preslav with nothing but threats, insults, and scars. 
He then proceeded to attack Bulgarian border fortresses. Now, crude as it was, the message was clear, and Peter was in no position to go to war over the tribute. He even sent his sons Boris and Roman to focus as prisoners, simply to ensure that peace would continue. But focus wasn't done. Now, the Kievan Rus, under the rule of Prince Sviatoslav, were a growing power, and having recently defeated the Khazars, were threatening Byzantine interests in the Crimea. Focus wisely thought that drawing them to attack and plunder the Bulgarians would take pressure off that area. As an added bonus, the Rus and the Bulgarians would exhaust each other in the ensuing war. You gotta admit, it's a good plan. But things weren't going to work out quite the way Romanus, or sorry, quite the way Focus envisioned. The Byzantines quickly negotiated a treaty with the Rus, and their invasion of Bulgaria began around either 967 or 968. They invaded with a massive force of 60,000 soldiers. Now, of course, Phocas, despite his victories, was still too preoccupied in the east to assist. So the Rus invaded Bulgaria on their own. Now, these 60,000 soldiers marched down the same path the original proto-Bulgarians had followed with Asperuch. And they met the Bulgarians near the Danube fortress of Silistra. The Bulgarians, with 30,000 troops, were outnumbered 2 to 1, but still managed to come close to victory. After a battle which lasted from dusk till dawn, it wasn't enough for the Bulgarians. Both sides suffered incredibly heavy losses, and the Bulgarians ultimately retreated into the Silistra fortress and prepared for a siege. Upon hearing the news, the aging Peter experienced a stroke and was forced to abdicate and enter a monastery. Clearly, the stroke somehow incapacitated him and made it so it was impossible for him to continue to rule. His eldest son, Boris, was still held captive in Byzantium, and the Kievan Rus were ravaging the entire region of Dobrja along the Danube. Now, unfortunately, you'll have to wait until next time to hear where the story goes from there. But for now, I want to stop and briefly recap the reign of Tsar Peter I. Peter was a pious and gentle man, possibly dominated by his Byzantine wife, the Tsaritsa. Though evidence for this is scarce, and Bulgaria did prosper between all the pillaging and raiding. Now, politics also fragmented during this period. While Simeon had played the peasants against the boyars while inspiring all with his leadership, well, inspiring and causing fear, Peter managed to court no one. He was left entirely isolated, but still strong enough to stay in power and resist uprisings. In reaction to these difficult times, Bulgaria also experienced a sort of religious revival. This revival manifested itself in two distinct ways. The first was a great interest in the solitary life of monasteries and hermits, and the second was the foundation of a new orthodox sect, or heresy depending on your view, Bogomilism. These religious changes will be the subjects of the next episode. Then, we'll jump back into the 50 years of war and the slow, painful death of the First Bulgarian Empire. And we'll see what the young Boris has to do with his own destiny. So stay tuned. The podcast is produced by Martin Christel. The composer of our theme music is Teddy Raven, and the story is written by me, Eric Halsey. Once again, help us spread the word by liking us on Facebook or writing us a review on iTunes. I'm happy to report that we finally reached 1,000 likes on Facebook. Thank you all so much for helping us get to this milestone. It really means a lot. 
So also I'll remind you that if you haven't already liked us on Facebook, if you do so, you'll see occasional posts that I put on there of all kinds of historical things, things about uh, what's going on in Bulgaria, which I hope you guys will find interesting. Also, check out our website at bghistorypodcast.com where you'll find the usual resources, maps, images, and things that'll come along with each episode. Also, I should make a note that we're currently working on some big upgrades for the website. We're hoping to have some interactive maps, interactive timelines, a variety of things. We're, we're experimenting. It might take a little while, but we are on it, so keep an eye out for that. And as always, thank, consider making a donation with the PayPal button on the website. Now, this time, I'd like to give a big thanks to Ryan and Nicole for their generous donation. But even without a donation, your emails and messages are always a highlight and a pleasure for us to read. All right, that's enough of me. So until next time, успех, or in English, good luck.